Hi there, this is Jaime Alejandro with the Arts Calling Podcast. I want to welcome you to the place where I showcase independent creatives, hardworking folks in the literary, visual, and performing arts. As you can tell, I sound a little bit better. I feel a bit better after after the COVID thing. So I'm going to get right to the point. We're going to do shout outs next week. Let's talk about today's guest, Anne Lee Parrish. I'm really excited to get to be Arts Calling her. And let me share a few things about her really quick. Anne Lee Parrish lives in a forest in the South Sound region of Washington State. She is the author of 12 books, which include short stories, novels, and poems. She has recently ventured into the art of photography. Find her online at anneleeparish.com. This is a phenomenal conversation with a seasoned writer, somebody who really knows their stuff. And I loved her sense of world building, her excitement for her craft. And uh, we talk a lot about her latest work, A Summer Morning, which is coming out from Unsolicited Press. So go ahead and pre-order that. Links in the episode description. Without further ado, let's give her a call. Hi, Anne. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. It looks like I can now. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I'm thrilled to have you here on the podcast. And uh, maybe we can learn a little bit more about you to begin with before we start talking about your latest novel, which is A Summer Morning. Uh, I'm really excited to to get the ball rolling. So can you tell me where you're at these days and, uh, and how the weather is over there, maybe? Sure. I live in Olympia, Washington. And for those of you who are not familiar with Washington State, that's about 75 miles south of Seattle. It is the state capital. I lived in Seattle with my husband and family for a long time, 35 years. Uh, But we're very happy here in Olympia. It's a very different pace of life from the city. Uh, Seattle just got too darn big. Amazon (laughs) uh, became a huge presence traffic was terrible it's the typical story uh, you know the mid-sized city becomes a bigger city and so on but we're very happy out here surrounded by our beautiful evergreen trees oh, yeah. um in terms of the weather it has <laughs> really very quickly snapped we are no longer in our summer season it is definitely fall uh we're getting up every day to a cloudy sky cooler temperatures and if you've lived in the northwest as long as i have it started to rain yesterday and that's just wonderful news we're all crazy about the rain here you'd think we'd uh, be (laughs) sodden and tired of it but we love it so the rain has come back that's wonderful to hear my wife and i we lived in seattle for a time and uh sure enough you know we were one of those uh imports for a moment or we went out there to live for a while and then we came right back just because we we realized that things were getting completely on a hand over there so i totally Mm -hmm, empathize with you there but you can't beat the weather i mean it is definitely it's uh, beautiful yeah one of those places where you know uh it's just magical sometimes but if we could backtrack for a moment and talk about uh where you get started in in life and writing can you share uh, a bit about when you discovered writing and where that was because you were originally from the east coast is that right that is correct i grew up in ithaca new york and there is some significance to that fact uh which is although i lived in that town only until the age of 14 
a great deal, not all, but a great deal of my fiction tends to be located there in the fictional town of Dunstan. That is the town that features in this novel, A Summer Morning. Um, but when I was living in Ithaca as a, as a child and then an early teenager, uh, I did love the idea of writing when I was young, say maybe seven or eight years old. But then my life segued uh, into classical piano. And that was really my focus. I, yeah, I was a very serious piano student. That's what I wanted to do, uh, so forth and so on. Um, my parents had divorced when I was 10. And then at 14, that seminal year, my mother decided to take a job with Rutgers University. She had been a professor at Cornell. So she moved us down to uh, central New Jersey. It was quite a change for me. I really didn't like it much. Uh, went through high school, still playing the piano, uh, but then my focus was just on, I want to get into a good college and and all of that kind of very typical high school stuff. Uh, what, what changed my trajectory was meeting my future husband uh, my senior year of high school. He was a couple years older. He was planning to move out to the state of Colorado, and I thought, you know, I think I'm going to go along and put this college business on hold for a couple of years. So we moved out to Boulder, Colorado in 1976, and I didn't start college uh, for two and a half years. I, mm. I went to the University of Colorado, and during those years when I was at the University of Colorado, I was majoring in economics. So at that point, writing had really no presence in my life mm. beyond what was becoming a growing fascination, almost an obsession with how I wrote my term papers and what it meant to get ideas on the page and how do you organize them. Mm. And it was it was sort of creeping into focus, but but not specifically. After college, we went to graduate school, and it was at that time that we came uh, to Seattle. My husband attended law school at the University of Washington, and I got a master's in business administration, which has <laughs> nothing to do with fiction writing. But again, the academic side of all of that and writing the papers, and I had a professor saying to me, you know, you really have a talent for writing. He said that in the context of urging me to pursue a doctorate degree in some business field. And at that point, I thought, oh, my goodness, I don't think I can do any more school. But um, I got out and I worked for a very brief time as an economics associate, uh, a consultant. And I wanted, I was beginning to realize at that point, I really did want to write. I was 26, 27 at that point. And then it just clicked. I said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to teach myself how to write short stories. And that was in 1985, the fall of 1985. So almost 38 years, 38 years. And that's what I've kind of been doing ever since. Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful to hear. And it seems like a lot of us kind of have to wander through several dip different paths to get to where we need to be. And I'm curious if we could um, linger on, on the business side of it for just a moment. Uh, what that environment was like at the time that you were, that you were in it and you were working in, in those sort of environments, because, uh, yeah, it seems like things might've been different than they are now in terms of you the mean, workplace. You mean when I was working briefly as an economics consultant in the mid 1980s? Yeah. Yeah. And just sort of a, a bit of the, the way of life at the time. 
Oh, you must you must be what I call a youngster. Well, okay, oh my goodness. <laughs> just to get a bit more context, not the not 1980s surprised. were a crazy decade. I mean, I was no fan of Ronald Reagan and his whole Reaganomics thing. Um, I really didn't like it. Uh, the state of Washington, where we had been living uh, for three years, was really going through a structural economic change. Uh, at that time, a lot of the state's income was resource based fishing, forestry, those industries were really hurting. And the and the unemployment rate in the state reached a high of 12.5%. It was really, really tough, tough out here. Um, but, you know, I, I, I worked at this one job. The, the economics consulting firm that I worked for got a lot of its money consulting to some of the Native American tribes who were beginning to make money off of casinos. They they wanted to invest their money or to use their money wisely. And the question that they would come to and bring to my bosses was, you know, what can we do to build our income source? And the guy I was working for, I'm sure he was very bright, but his big idea was, well, you know, you should really promote tourism and, and, and get people to come to your little Washington state town because they want to gamble, that kind of thing. Mm. I didn't find it all that interesting. You know, I quit <laughs> and took a, took a job just as a receptionist in our local utility that was not at all commensurate with my academic training, but it did allow me to go home at the end of the day and write because it wasn't particularly stressful. It was mm-hmm. a paycheck every two weeks, sure, that kind of thing. Sure. Um, and so, and yeah. so, yeah, at the at the time then, um, when you first started discovering writing, and, and it seems like it might have been around this time period then, yeah. Yeah. what were you writing about specifically? Was it something that acted as an escape to this, this these conditions, or was it was it more about sharpening the the tools that you needed to become a better writer and less about political responses or, or societal responses? Well, see, in the beginning, my fiction really did not touch on politics or what I refer to as the larger world very much. They were very interior. They were all uh, focused on family relationships and terrible families. I had grown up in, in what I'm perfectly happy to say was a terrible, terrible family. Um, it was a very, very difficult situation. And I wrote about that a lot. Um, and I'm sure a lot of writers will say this. Uh my fiction was thinly veiled autobiography. I did ultimately move out from that, but in the beginning I was writing about a young woman very much like me and what she was struggling with and what made her depressed and how she was trying to find her way and discover, you know, personal agency. Um, one thing I will remark on, you know, this was 1985. And if you wanted to submit a short story for consideration, and I began submitting my work right out of the gate, looking back, probably not a very judicious thing. I really hadn't learned uh, my craft all that well. That set me up for just reams and reams of regret rejection notices but to touch on my earlier point of a moment ago these this was the day before electronic submissions you had to take your story and put it in an envelope and provide an s-a-s-e and for those of you who don't know what that is that stands stands for self-addressed um return envelope i'm not sure where the s-a-s-e yeah. comes from self uh, uh, stamped but, uh, yeah that's what it was yeah thank, so. self-addressed stamped envelope thank you and with your name on it and return postage so that the rejection slip could come back to you 
and it, you know, you had to pay for postage and, and to do it that way. Mm. Uh, and I was delighted when, you know, a few years later, journals would, would say you can submit electronically. Uh, I do still find some places will say we will not accept email submissions. And I think, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> Everybody takes email submissions. But I do remember that as, as a, a distinct feature of the mid and late 1980s. Yeah. And you said something. Postage. Yeah. You said something really interesting that caught my my ear here. This notion of getting your own autobiography out of your system in some respects. I think that we have to sort of mine and and really uh, I, I keep saying exercise because I guess I have a lot of religious terminology that this is kind of second nature to me now but you are sort of releasing a lot of those personal afflictions and then you find a kind of clarity to to start sort of opening up the canvas a bit of the work that you're doing did you feel that was the case or was it less of a judgmental like okay, I got this stuff out of my system. Now I can write about life and, and my society and my environment well, and I think, things like that. Okay, so the, the first story that I published uh, was called A Painful Shade of Blue. And it appeared in the, night, in the fall 1995 issue of the Virginia Quarterly Review. And I was absolutely thrilled because uh, that was the place that first published Ann Beattie. Uh, so I was excited about that. Um, it was not a conscious decision i did not in other words i did not say to myself okay i'm i feel better about my life and what i went through because i'm not sure it, it took a very long time to feel better about that life what happened was i i wanted to branch out i wanted to write about something else um i was very fortunate in my early writing career to have an informal mentor, a man named Mike Curtis, who was the fiction editor at the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, this was an introduction that my father uh, agreed to make for me, although my father was very opposed to my being a writer for reasons that I won't get into now. But Mike Curtis had been many years before a student of my father's at Cornell University, and they had stayed in touch. And he went to Mike and said, you know, my daughter has this crazy idea that she thinks she'd become a, a writer. Would you be willing informally to read one or two of her stories? And he said, sure. So I sent to him and he was wonderful. And, and we had this relationship where I would send him a story. He would remark on it. This went on for eight years and I learned so much from this man. But my point is that there came a time when he said to me, you know, I begin to, to wonder about this character you're always writing about. She's always depressed. She's always unhappy. She seems to be dithering mm. in her life. And I thought, well, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but based on those remarks, I thought, you know, it's time to write about other people who are not you, who have not lived your life. So that began. And that's how that process started, you know, in, in early to mid 90s. So a good 10 years after I'd been writing. Yeah. It was a slow process in the beginning. Right. And so um, as we approach uh, more of the long form things, when did that start to become uh, a preferred, you know, uh, form or format for you? Because you've, you've been very prolific. You've written quite a few novels. And I'm curious, when did you find the confidence to start going for the long form works? Was this you know, shortly after these kinds of epiphanies or, or did it take a little bit longer to arrive at? Oh, it took a long time. It took a long time because, so 
my first short story was published in 1995. I didn't get another short story published for like another six, seven years. It was very hard. Um, I began to publish short fiction only because I was writing only short fiction regularly uh, in the 2000s. Uh, won a couple of contests in 2006, 2007. As we got around, you know, the late 2000s coming up on, on 2010, some people said to me, I began to think it to myself, you know, maybe I should think about a novel. But the idea was really daunting. It was really scary. But then a day came when I was writing about a certain cast of characters and I thought, you know, 4,000 words, 5,000 words, which was my typical short story length at that time, is not enough. I need more room. I want to roam a little bit. And that's where the impetus to actually write a novel came from. That said, I didn't publish my first novel until, well, about nine years ago now, the fall of 2014. And that novel was called What is Found, What is Lost. It wasn't my first book. It was my third book. I had published two short story collections prior to that, one in 2011 and one in 2013. But that novel was the first one in 2014. And after that, you know, I was able to write more novels. Sort of the floodgates open then at that yes, point Yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, if we could kind of linger in this moment for just a bit in terms of the learning experiences or what did the thresholds look like that you were overcoming uh, once you got to that first uh, long form uh, work? Well, okay. So to, to back up just a little bit, I, I didn't really have an agenda. I didn't really see this as a career ladder or things that I was going to achieve and tick off and move forward. But then I, be, I became a little bit more cognizant of looking at it that way. And casting my mind back, I really just wanted to get a story published. So I did that. Then I wanted to publish stories regularly. Then that began to happen. I wanted it to become the case that every story I worked on and published would find a home. That began to happen. Then I wanted to win a contest. I wanted to be first place in a contest. Ended up over a couple of years, I and I was in that position, fortunately, four times. I was first place winner four times. Then I wanted to bring out a, a, a book, a book length collection. I did. Then I wanted to write a novel. I did. Then I wanted to, the next thing was to take these books and um, submit them for contest awards and have them win something, um, an honorable mention, a first place. I said, I did that. Mm. <laughs> so that's kind of, kind of, you know, where it was and that agenda hasn't particularly changed i still i want every book i write to be able to win some kind of an award or an accolade or an honor um it's not as important as it used to be i just want to write what i want to write and i want it, whoever's going to read it to think well of it and to get something out of it um and that's kind of where i am now well, that's a that's a beautiful perspective. I mean, it's it's nice to know that your work is is valued in terms of awards and things like that. But I think you have a certain clarity about what kind of stories you enjoy and what kind of, of, of pleasure there is in writing. And maybe that's a really good segue to talk about A Summer Morning, which is your latest collection, because as you're talking about uh, some of your past projects and maybe uh, 
memories or influences, we start to see that a summer morning kind of neatly falls into that repertoire of work where you want to talk about family, you want to talk about people who are who are overcoming wounds and, and are perhaps having, you know, intimate, close experiences uh, with the people that they love and the people who hurt them as well. And, um, you know, this I did read quite a quite a bit of it. Uh, and uh, this is just a, a delightful time in terms of character study, you know, and the stuff that you go into in this work. But without giving any, anything away, if you could set the stage a little bit about a summer morning and what those relationships look like and, and the folks that we follow in this piece. Okay, so that a summer morning um, presents again a family that I have written about a number of times, the Dugan family residing in Dunstan, New York. They first appeared in my linked short story collection, Our Love Could Light the World. That came out in 2013. Um, the character in a summer morning, the female character, Sam, short for Samantha, makes a, a, a much more limited appearance, but she it does appear in an unrelated novel that came out in 2017 called uh, Women Within. The Dugan family, fictionally, didn't really start to pick up steam until my 2018 title called The Amendment. That one focused focuses on the mother, Lavinia Dugan. She is my favorite fictional character. In fact, I love her so much that when last year I really got into photography and decided to establish my own photography website on Squarespace, I decided to call it LaviniaStudios.com. Anyway, um, so we have, we have the amendment, which was my 2018 title. The family consists of five children. Um, my 2019 title, Maggie's Ruse, uh, focuses on the identical twins, Maggie and Marta. And then in 2021, we have A Winter Night, which focuses on eldest daughter, Angie Dugan. So you have these members of the family that get their own books. I thought, well, there are two, two males in this um, group of five siblings. Uh, Timothy Dugan is the oldest son, and he didn't have a book. And I thought, I'm going to give Timothy a book. And that book that I gave Timothy is A Summer Morning. Now, Timothy is a desperate character. He's really at a point where he is struggling in his life. A lot of issues that he needs to sort out, the, the really uh, difficult thing for him. He, he likes to drink and he has a big dependence on alcohol. And this book introduces the reader, brings the reader on stage, if you will, at a point where this drinking is really starting to take over. And so this novel is about watching him sadly slide and lose control of his life and the people around him are trying to help him primarily his girlfriend Sam is trying to help him and and, and she too obviously living with somebody who's struggling with addiction is very challenging and she is definitely challenged and she is really having a tough time but that's and you know it it, it, it goes over the course of this summer and it's a season that he doesn't like. He is an upstate New York boy, uh, born and bred, and he just loves winter. He loves it being cold. And so he hates the summer. 
So that's sort of also, and how can you hate summer, right? But that sets the tone uh, for his malaise and his dyspepsia. And yeah, it really is a character study of, you know, what happens when somebody is losing touch. And he is very much an unreliable narrator. You know, if, it, you know, he doesn't, he's losing the ability to connect and to see things the way other people do. And it's sad. I find it sad. I think it's a sad book. Um, my my other titles are have a lot more humor in them. There's some humor here, of course, but it's not a, a yak, 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 gee, that's so funny kind of thing. It's kind of, a, ooh, this is pretty bad. <laughs> and I thought, you know, from, from the parts that I've read of this book, I, I think one of the greatest takeaways is that ability to for you to get us into his headspace and understand that this is a, a broken person who very quickly has to catch up with the consequences of his actions. And I thought that was really well done, especially in terms of perspective and, and really putting us in that mindset was was troubling at first, right? Because you're you're sitting here immediately empathizing with somebody who may not be at 100% and, and maybe self-sabotaging in many respects. But um, but it, it's very moving that um, that you're still rooting for somebody to sort of turn it around and, and make something um, in terms of choices, <laughs> make the right choices. Um, do the right thing. Yeah, yes. to do the right thing. Yeah. He, uh, he wants to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. You know, he always does. There is a part of him that really does want to rise to the occasion and be the man his girlfriend hopes that he will be and 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 no doubt was. But but I'm hoping that the, the, the very astute reader will come away saying, well, was he ever really all that great? <laughs> or has she been hanging on for, yeah. for the length of their relationship? Has she been, you know, misled or deluded? And what are her issues? And and she she appears in another novel that I that I just finished this year. But uh it sort of picks up their story. Um, but yeah, yeah, he, he is definitely struggling. And I absolutely, um, oh, I'm sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just curious of of this ensemble that you've built over the years. These are people that I imagine are very dear to you. And you you want to keep digging and digging more into into this world, I imagine. But I guess my main question on this is, how do you manage the assortment of characters who are very rich in their own right who as you say some have their own stories they have their own novels and and they have their own very strong perspectives how did you manage the chaos of having a majority of the ensemble come back to this work and and really balance out the threads so that timothy's could be front and center in this particular story because i can imagine it would be very um appealing right to maybe dig a little bit more into the other characters, the supporting ones in this. Oh, one. absolutely, absolutely. Well, it's it's a it's really a function of keeping your character consistent. You know, if, if the twins in my 2019 novel, uh, Maggie's Ruse, have blonde hair, I have to make darn sure that they still have blonde hair. You know, it, it is that level of that detail work. And but I know these people really, really well, so it wasn't too challenging to keep them consistent. I have a very I like to think a well-grounded idea of who they are, what are they doing with their lives, what are their what are their good points, what are their bad points, and keeping them together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, keeping them consistent. It, it's a yeah. it's a function of consistency. Right, and to kind of push on that just a little bit in regards to the evolution of these characters, uh, at what point do you find that that maybe 
an action that would be ideal in terms of structure for this book might counter previous behaviors? Or is it an opportunity for a character to learn and grow? Because that's got to be its own battle too, right? Like what's the the balance of keeping it consistent in terms of across the board, several novels and bringing new challenges that, that push a character to change, but not for the worse, not to, not to destroy the character, but to, to maybe elevate them. That's got to be really challenging. It is challenging. Well, the thing, the thing that one has to do and what I try to do is, is, is make it so that every character is a fully rounded person with her own life, her own background, his own life, his own background. And seeing like the mother, Lavinia, she, she changes over the course of these books. You know, she's sort of hard-nosed. And in her, the title that she got mostly for herself, The Amendment, um, her second husband has just died in a freak accident. And she gets in her car and she just starts driving and she drives across the country. And that's what that novel is about. But she is a slightly different, she, she has gone through some processes of her own. She's come to terms with, with some failings and strengths in herself. And so when she is dealing with, with, with her son, Timothy, in this novel, A Summer Morning, she's not quite the same person that she was in that novel or even who she was in, in uh, Maggie's Ruse and A Winter Night. She, too, is evolving. And the point is that people in life and on the page are always ideally evolving. They're not 100% stuck. So it, it's 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 keeping track of what these characters are going through, where are they in their life, and how is that impacting where they overlap with the, with the character that you are bringing front and center. Mm -hmm. you know, yeah. It, it, is there is there a nuanced behavior? Right. Is there evolving behavior? Yeah. And this is sort of a practical concern here that I'm curious about is this uh, notion of keeping track of just about everything that these folks have done over the course of several books. How do you manage this in terms of information and data? Do you have like a, a just a filing cabinet full of each character's mm -hmm. folders or is it all no, in your head? No, but sometimes or? I forget and I and I find that I have to go back to a previously pre previously published novel, literally take it off my desk, open it and say, okay, what was going on in this scene? Or what was the name of her boyfriend? Or, you know, something like that because I won't remember off the top of my head and I will have to go back and look. But it's right. all there. I know where to find it. <laughs> sure, sure. And so the... <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> the existing books sort of operate like Bibles, character Bibles of... Of, of what came before. Yes, exactly. And that's great. That's wonderful. So with this book, as you're putting it together, can you elaborate a little bit on how long it took to piece this one together? What were the, the biggest challenges in crafting this particular work? Okay, well, in terms of length, start to finish, it took about nine, 10 months to, to scratch out a, a fairly reliable draft. It came fairly naturally for me to make Timothy an unreliable narrator, but that's tricky because you really have to be be careful about that because it's hard. You know, the, the reader is look the reader is going to look at everything through his eyes, but then the people around him are all the time saying, "Well, no, Timmy, they don't you remember it wasn't that way?" And then something will click in his head, and he'll say, "She was right." He had said that before. So it was, 
that was a bit of a struggle, you know, to have him so sunk in himself and, and to have the lens that he was looking through be so clouded that, that the clarity comes not from within him, but from his girlfriend, his mother, his business partner, his extended family, mm. you know, the person from his past who reappears. And again, spoiler alert, I won't go into that too much. But, <laughs> you know, if you if you read the description of, of, of the book on Amazon, I did kind of go overboard on, on laying out the plot. Everything is there so you know what you're getting into before you read it. But live and learn. I think that's probably okay actually but yeah but to keep him a a consistently unreliable narrator (laughs) Mm -hmm. right right and so um when you got into the process of of going out to publish this work can you tell me a little bit about how much work you felt needed to be done in in the publication process or did you work with an editor on this or or what was that like to get it ready for publication well, I'm sort of my own really tough editor, and um, so I am the editor that I work with. Now, in terms of publishing, since I signed my first contract with Unsolicited Press in the fall of 2016, and that was for a collection of short stories that came out the following February called By the Wayside, they basically are my publisher and they publish everything I write Mm. and I'm very grateful I feel very lucky very fortunate so I know that this book will find a home that it will come out Um, that said my publisher does read with a sharp eagle eye and she will say "Um, I think you need to look at this this situation here I think you need to look at your wording here there there is definitely a rigorous back and forth but it's not overwhelming it's mm. not it doesn't flatten me or doom the, the project in any way sure sure you're kind of used to that you're yeah what do they call it like battle worn in terms of criticism oh, and totally. finding what to what to fix and adjust yeah oh totally because all those years of writing short stories and getting them published sometimes an editor would say I really need you to look at the ending uh, as a side note for all you aspiring writers out there, you know, a good publisher slash editor is is never going to demand that the author change something. You know, maybe a strong suggestion would be as forceful as it gets. Um, they should never demand that you change something. If they've offered you publication, they need to take that pretty much as is. But of course, they get to say your spelling is wonky, you left off your quotation marks, or... Sure you know, look about, look at, look at your word choice here and think about that. Mm. And that's fair. So at any point, have you ever felt like you've had to go back personally and, and make huge adjustments to the story or the work or, you know, even before you get to the publisher where you realize I've hit a a roadblock and I can't get this to work. And you sort of make the, the personal assessment that there's going to be more work for you and, and to just redo a whole draft. Did you have those kinds of issues with, with this book? Totally. Not with this book, no. With the first novel, the first novel was tough because it it covers a, a large span of time. It presents several main characters. Each main character has her section. It's it, it that one was very hard. Um, Maggie's ruse was tough too because it was about twins who kind of have a psychic connection and when are they reading each other's minds when aren't they reading each other's minds yeah yeah novel writing is very very hard (laughs) (laughs) it's really hard yeah um so so yeah 
Yeah, yeah. So as you as you get to into the groove of things, right? You've been doing this uh, uh, quite a bit now, and you have several yeah. novels uh, under your um, your repertoire. As I said, what are you working on now in terms of of novel writing? That that you said, okay, I have identified my strengths as a novelist, but here are the things that that I know need to be at a higher level. Are there some things that you are actively conscious about? that that need to go up to the level of your strengths as a novelist well yes and now um lyrical language tops the list the language has to be perfect it has to be beautiful it has to be super super fine i'm also very interested in historical perspective on women's issues present day and in the past um Last October, just about a year ago, I published a novel called An Open Door, and that is a departure from the Dugan stories. Um, that features a young woman um, named Edith Sloan. It is set in 1948. Um, she is attending graduate school at Harvard University. She is married to a law student. and because of the time and place he gets spotted as an up-and-coming law student he is identified as probably going to have a brilliant career and he is told by the powers that be that he needs a certain kind of wife and he tells edith i don't want you to pursue your doctoral degree you know people don't like it and and this is loosely based on my mother's own life in the late 1940s as she was going up the ladder um she wasn't told to abandon her academic work that came later uh in the 50s but i wanted to write about that and how repressive it was for for women following the freedoms that they earned in the second world war the men all, all came home they took the spots in school they took the jobs and for women you were told tough luck this is your role so what i'm finishing up now in fact i was earlier this morning just going over the galley for the sequel to that story again not a dugan story but the, edith sloan's story um, called the hedgerow and that will come out um in July, in July of 2024. Mm. Uh, but there will be more Dugan stories, uh, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> they, they can't leave you be. You, they, they you have to go back to that be. well. So yeah, you bet. You brought up a really interesting point here in terms of, of the feminine voice and, and having those concerns, you know, as a, as a writer. That's very important, and I'm glad that you're writing about it. And I guess that kind of I'm curious if writing through Timothy's perspective primarily caused a challenge for you in that regard, um, because, you know, he he is sort of an imperfect character in, in some of some of the, the ways that he um, that he saw the world. And uh, I'm curious how you sort of reconciled those things as you were writing and you were looking at the world through a male perspective rather than, you know, um, you know, the female voice. Okay, well, Timothy is not a typical sexist pig. Um, he doesn't understand the female perspective, but he doesn't understand anybody's perspective. He doesn't understand mm. his own perspective. He does have certain assumptions about what his girlfriend's role in their relationship is. He assumes she's going to take care of the house. She's going to uh, take care of him. But that's because she does. He doesn't expect that of her because she's a woman. He expects that of her because she is has hastened to fill that role. Now, his mother, Lavinia, is not that person. She's very crusty. She doesn't take care of anybody. <laughs> <laughs> she lets she had to take care of her children, raising them because her husband, Timothy's father, 
was an alcoholic, couldn't hold a job. So she ran that ship and that made her very tough and very no nonsense. Um, she has no use for people who don't pull their weight. But, but Timothy's girlfriend is much more accommodating. She wants to help him. Um, she may feel that she's a bit of a doormat at times, but, the, but you make an interesting point. This is my, the first book novel that I have presented with a male protagonist. And to be perfectly honest, I think some of my readers were taken a bit aback mm. because he's not a great guy and he is frustrating. And you do at times want to wring his neck. The novel about Timothy's sister, Angie, A Winter Night, is much more sympathetic. Readers could really relate to her and what she's struggling with. She's a likable character. Timothy isn't a particularly likable character. You know, if, if you are a good person and you have a good heart, you're going to feel sorry for this guy but a lot of people want to kick him in the shins you know grab him <laughs> by the collar and tell him to get a grip but i think some readers found that hard you know that that he he he's not a great guy but i don't it's not a i tell people fiction is not a popularity contest you don't have to like <laughs> the main character you just have to be engaged by what he's going through Absolutely. And I think that's the greater challenge and, and one that you handled really well is balancing out the the empathy necessary to make this possible. And I, I think having having such dynamic characters, which I really believe are, are sort of like the greater challenges, you know, in, in storytelling in general is something that that I think you did really well in this because you still wanted him to do the right thing. And I thought that was a that was really effective. But in regards to, you know, and I got a couple more questions to be mindful of your time here, but in, in sure. regards to your writing process, as we've mentioned, you're very prolific and you've, you're cranking out work. And that's really exciting to see because we're looking for ways that we can pass that on to folks who are just starting on their creative journey. So I'm curious if you can share a few things about your routine or the way that you approach this work uh, that facilitates the, you know, the, the quality and quantity of, of your work that you're putting out there? Well, I'm not sure how to address that. Um, it's it, First, let's let's remind our, our listeners, I've been doing this a really long time, so I have gotten faster. The whole drafting, revising, editing process has picked up a lot of speed. I mean, my goodness, after 38 years, <laughs> you'd think I've gotten, <laughs> gotten up to speed on it. The, the other thing that I find really helps, and I don't speak for any other writer but myself, I have several projects going at once. There are books in the pipeline. There are things that are at various stages of production, you know, edits will come back from my publisher, or I've got a galley that I've got to proof and get ready to go to press, or I'm drafting the next thing. Everything is on a deadline. Editorial schedules are drawn up. I also write poetry. So, the, the, and I publish poetry. I have got a third book coming out six months after the hedgerow in December of 2024, just fi finishing up something that's coming out in 2026. So the fact that when the project that I'm giving my attention to at the moment starts to get stale or it starts to get difficult and it's not coming as easily, I am able to put it away for a little bit of time and focus on something else. And it's this going round robin that keeps things fresh enough mm. so that I can return quickly 
and get and and resume that focus and that effort. Um, if I just wrote one book at a time and was only working on that, I don't know what I would do. You know, when that inevitable wall comes, you're just not having a great day. The characters don't have anything interesting to say for themselves, and you're just tearing your hair out. <laughs> and, and you le- and you're going to leave it alone anyway. But in my case, I can jump into that poetry manuscript, or I can, you know, look at the next collection of short stories that I'm working on. There's some other place that I can instantly go. So so in so doing, I keep the, the, the writing muscle flexed. It's always being worked on. And, and that really does help. Oh, wonderful. And I imagine that's got to be such a thrill when you are experiencing a little bit of a block when you're approaching the larger works to pivot immediately to something mm-hmm. that is so immediate and so delightful as poetry. And I'm curious oh, if I, I could ask, poetry. yeah, one one thought about poetry here, what, what is it that poetry gives you technically that, that you can take with you to the other mediums that you're working on? Well, poetry is a very free art form. You could say kind of whatever you want. There, it does have to have some kind of uh, anchor in, in the real world because the writer has to connect. The writer has to understand what you're getting at. It can't just be pretty word salad, you know, but you're very free writing a poem. And I try to take that freedom and, and let it empower me when I go back to prose and say, you know, push it a little more, stretch not only the language, but, you know, round out your character a little bit more deeply. You can take a bit of a chance here. You, you can push a little further. And that's, that's what it's done for me technically, I think. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, um, it's one of those things that I, I really recently just started embracing fully. Uh, as a playwright, that's that's one of those areas where I feel like it it's so succinct and it teaches you so much about the brevity and and specificity of something that I just can't imagine the how precious of a gift that is for a novelist who's who's looking to really drive things home and and finding that that total control uh, for for the smallest unit of, <laughs> of storytelling. Yeah, I guess exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but last question here, because this has been a phenomenal time and I, I just can't thank you enough for, for doing this. Um, if, if you could share a few things that you're working on, uh, I know that you talked about projects in particular that are coming up here soon, but things that you're, you're looking to improve on as a, uh, as a writer in the next couple of, uh, couple of years, uh, that you've kind of set your sights on. What are some things that, that scare you as an artist that you'd like to tackle in the coming in the coming years well i i think you know women's issues reproductive rights are a huge concern for me and i do want to keep people excuse me keep people focused on that because we have to we have to keep looking at that you know i'm very disturbed by what's going on in the country politically. Um, I, I'm a very liberal person, and I think that the liberals have let us down because they haven't kept their eye on the ball. You know, they kind of let uh, let the fox into the hen house a little <laughs> bit there. Yeah. Um, so that scares me. There's really nothing about the art that scares me so much, but the state of the country is concerning. Um, and I want to find a way for my for my art to to underscore that, but never be heavy handed, never be didactic and 
preachy, that kind of thing. That's just not good art. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think with that, that is a there's a powerful note to end on. But and I'd like to thank you so much for this wonderful work that you've written, a beautiful character study of an imperfect person dealing with consequences. It was a delight to read. But I also want to thank you for taking the time to share your insights and for reminding us that it is uh, writing is is possible um, with enough ethic and and drive and precision you know, in the way that you're tackling these things. And it's really inspiring to know that you're, you've been out there doing this for a little while. And uh, I, this, this has been a gift. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, I will let you enjoy your Sunday, but I hope that we get to chat a little bit more down the road and have a wonderful day. Thank you. Same to you. All right. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye.